The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Rini Melody Baker. I see you down the bunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. Today is a very special episode of Radical because this is the first time that I'm actually in the same space as my guest. I'm currently in Iceland and I'm at the University of Iceland in a beautiful small podcast studio. Together with Eva Onudottir, who is a professor of political science at the University of Iceland here in Reykjavik, Her main work is in the fields of electoral studies and public opinion, and she has published several pieces about the so-called pots and pans protest in the wake of the economic crisis of 2008-9, which hit Iceland early and hard. Welcome to the podcast, Eva. Thank you very much. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? This is a question that I had to think or have to think a little bit about, but to be honest, The first team that I ever supported, I was eight or nine, and it was the Icelandic handball team. And we were playing in the World Cup Legion B. And we won that, and we were thrilled. It was just like we won the World Cup Legion A. (laughs) Right. So second, what is your favorite political song? Well, the first one that comes to my mind is basically a cover song. So we had this party here in Iceland called The Best Party. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, it was led by a comedian and actually won 30% in the capital and uh, the leader of the best party became the mayor. But they had a campaign song, which was a cover of a song by Tina Turner, I'm Simply the Best. And one of the things they in the lyrics, they were saying basically that they will promise a lot of things, but they wouldn't follow up on their promises. Right. That was the first song that came to my mind. And it's also a fun song to dance to, basically. <laughs> And that is also actually a political party as well as a person that we'll talk about later. So finally, the most difficult question for any academic, what's your favorite political book? Well, I didn't really have to think hard about that one because I remember reading when I started my BA studies in 1999, one of the first books I had to read was Holyarchy by Robert Dahl. And this was on my first semester and I had a hard time understanding it, but it has kind of followed me ever since. So that Yeah, that's my favorite. Maybe because it was my first, but he was also a really good theorist. Absolutely. So let's start out with some basic information about Iceland. Iceland is geographically at the periphery of Europe. How is this politically? Where does Iceland fit with regard to, say, the EU and NATO? So Iceland was, I think I'm correct to say, it was one of the founding states of NATO. Well, it's been part of NATO since 1949. We are not part of the EU But we are part of the European economic area. And we've been that since 1994. So basically, we have this agreement with the EU that we kind of have to follow almost all of the rules of the EU, but we are not part of the decision making of the EU. So Iceland has a multi-party system, but many of the main parties do not fit the traditional party families of Europe. For instance, of the five biggest parties in the last election... Only the left-green movement and the Social Democratic Alliance have familiar names. Where do the Independence Party, the biggest party in Iceland, and the Progressives and the Center Party fit? So the Independence Party is a right-wing conservative party, and it's one of the established parties in Iceland. And it has been more and less leading the government since the late 1950s. 
And then we have Progressive Party, which is also one of the established parties or one of the old parties, like we call it. And they are kind of center-right. This is a former agrarian party that kind of had to find a new base mm-hmm. when uh, farmers moved to, to the urban areas. So now it's Progressive Party is like a center-right party, but it's also a welfare party and and they are smaller than the independence party, but they have also more or less been in government the last 30, 40 years, but not necessarily leading it always. Mm-hmm. And then we have this center party, which out of those three parties is the newest one. It was elected into the parliament in 2017, and it was founded by a former leader of the Progressive Party. And that leader, his name is Simon Turtavith. He was a prime minister in the government from 2013 to 16. And that government went down because of the Panama Papers, if you mm-hmm. recall those. And he was found lying. He was caught lying in an interview about money that he had in offshore companies. So the Centre Party is led by Simon Turtavith. And it's, um, you can call it a splinter party from the Progressive Party. But they are still establishing themselves as a party that could survive. So in some ways, Iceland was the first to experience the Great Recession, as documented in the excellent documentary Inside Job. Can you describe shortly when the economic crisis in Iceland started and how significantly it affected the Icelandic economy? Yeah, so it was in October 2008 when the Icelandic public first became aware of that there was something seriously wrong. We like to think about that the starting point was the 6th of October when the Prime Minister of Iceland appeared live on TV and told us that the banks might be collapsing. But what signaled the seriousness of the situation was that he used the word God bless Iceland at the end of his interview. And that is very, very unusual in Icelandic politics. I'm probably safe to say that that has never happened before. So people were kind of felt with a feeling like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a lot of things happened in the next few days. And and we could talk about that for hours. For example, the UK used their law against terrorism to seize the properties of the Icelandic banks that operated in the UK. There was an ongoing diplomatic dispute with the UK and the Dutch authorities because of accounts that the Icelandic banks had offered there. But basically what happened in the fall 2008, uh, the Icelandic economy was basically collapsing. It basically collapsed. And it was, it was pretty, pretty serious. Right. And it was by and large saved by tourism, right? Yes. Like many of the countries that were really hard hit with the economic crisis in 2008, we got an emergency loan from the IMF because of tourism that kind of picked up maybe in 2010. That was a major contribution for the Icelandic economy to be able to pay that loan back quickly right? and increase economic growth again. So in, in the wake of the economic crisis, there have been massive political protests in the country, including the so-called pots and pens protests. What were they about? Shortly after our prime minister appeared live on TV with his God bless Iceland speech, protesters started to gather in front of the parliament. I think it was on the 12th of October or something, about a week later. And they organized these weekly meetings, like uh, on Saturdays. And to begin with, it was not many people, maybe 100 people or something like that. But what basically happened, like this involved, so more and more people started to show up. Surveys show that about 25% of those living in the capital area, they at some time point participated in those protests. What was unusual in the Icelandic context is that protests of of this time length and scale 
had never happened before. We had had once a very intense protest, and that was when Iceland joined NATO in 1949. But since then, it's nothing. So we didn't have really a culture of protesting. And one of the remarkable things is that, of course, the police was there to kind of uh, uphold the rule and law and uh, to prevent violence and etc. And at some time point, because, of course, protesters became angry and angrier because it seemed like the government was not going to do anything. And some of the protesters started to take out their anger on the police that was kind of protecting the parliament. And at some time point, there was a turning point where the protesters said like, hey, you know, those working at the police, they're just as screwed as we are. So we are not attacking them. We are protesting against the government. So I kind of made a peace with the police and kind of even some of the protesters started to defend them. I know this is a little bit long, but I was actually watching a documentary about the pots and pans protest a few months ago. And I actually got very emotional when I watched it. At the end, I just started to cry. And this was a documentary. They were telling the story of the protesters. So mm-hmm. it was from the protesters' side. But it kind of reminded me how angry people were and frustrated and felt so disappointed And as I said earlier, there were about 25% of people living in the capital area who actually took part at some time point. But surveys also showed that about 70% of the Icelandic nation supported what the protesters were asking for. So this was a bit the equivalent of what the Occupy protest in various other countries became. And like in other countries, a political movement emerged out of it, whereas it was like left-wing populist in Greece or in Spain. In Iceland, it was a comedian, Jon Gnar, who ran a half-serious campaign and yet was elected mayor of Reykjavik, where roughly one-third of the population of Iceland lives. So who is Jon Gnar and how did he become mayor of Reykjavik? So Jon Gnar is a famous comedian in Iceland and he's been working for television and, and movies for, well, I think last uh, 30 years. So he was a famous comedian and he decided prior to the local election in Iceland in 2010 to start this party called the Best Party and to campaign, as far as I understand it, this started as a joke. He has said somewhere in interviews that he didn't really expect this to go this far, but then they end up with like 35% of the vote in the capital right. and he, he becomes a mayor. So this was as big a surprise to him as it was to the rest of the country, I think. So what was his campaign like? What, what were some of his slogans or promises? One of the things he promised was that he was going to get a polar bear into the zoo. And the other promise was that he would break all his promises. Right. So Gnar, to a certain extent, becomes the voice of the protest, right? Was he prominent in the pots and pans protest or not really related to it? He wasn't really in the forefront. I don't know if he personally took part or not. Well, his party was... I think it was one of the kind of the symptoms of or consequences of the changes we, right. we would like to see. But there were other people who were more prominent who founded parties that went into the parliament, like the Pirate Party and more. Right. But he wasn't in the forefront of the protest itself. Yeah, which is very interesting because actually kind of the same happened in Greece, in Spain, even in the US, where these movements were almost hijacked by other movements. Even someone like Bernie Sanders, who did speak at Occupy Wall Street, was himself not particularly important in Occupy Wall Street, yet profited very much from that movement. Now, while Nair was not particularly serious about his campaign, how did he govern as a mayor? 
see, he became serious. Basically, when he took over as a mayor, he just did the job. He took over all the practical things and the management that he ha- had to do as a mayor. And he stopped being like the comedian when he was the mayor. And he was the mayor for one term and then he stepped down and he went back to his old job so as a comedian. And he actually made a TV show called The Mayor. And he's never said explicitly that it was based on his experience as a mayor, but one wonders, of course. How is the public perception of him as a politician, as, as a mayor? Is he a disappointment? Because he started out as kind of this radical who kicked against the system and then seemed to have governed pretty much as a mainstream candidate. Is he seen as kind of the voice of those protests or is he seen as someone who betrayed the radical agenda of the protest? I'm not sure, but I would think what is important here is that he was the mayor of Reykjavik. So this was local politics, not national politics. So I would think that people were not necessarily disappointed with his work. And also because how the best party ran their campaign, they ran it as a joke. So he wasn't really promising anything. So I don't think really people expected the party to change much uh, in the city. And it's still one third of the population that lives in the city. So I assume that everything that happens in Reykjavik is very relevant for what happens in Iceland. But this could, of course, also been, you know, voting against the other parties. True. So the best party was dissolved. Gnar himself left politics, but several prominent best party members remained active. Several in the Bright Future Party, which looks like a fairly standard liberal party. Is there any legacy of the Gnar period? So what happened to Bright Future is that they became a parliamentary party in uh, 2013. But they were voted out in 2017. The Bright Future was supposed to be the like the serious part of the best party. But that future did not survive. So in that sense, there is no legacy of the Gnar period in politics. One of the reasons the Bright Future didn't survive could be because they were not successful in building up the infrastructure. Right. So there's not necessarily a legacy of Jon Gnar as the comedian and the mayor more than... This was an interesting time in local politics in Reykjavik. But of course, this whole scenario is a symptom of the changes that people were kind of maybe looking for, mm-hmm. even if this was not necessarily to survive or last. Right. And so in 2017, Katrin Jakobsdottir, who is the leader of the left green movement, became the prime minister. She is a 41-year-old woman who is an avowed environmentalist and a self-described democratic socialist, which all sounds quite radical. Is she radical? And how did she, as the leader of only the second most popular party, become prime minister? Katrin Jakobsdottir, our prime minister today, she has been involved in politics for over 20 years now. And in her politics, as part of the left-green movement and as a leader of the movement, so her work can best be described as, like she says herself, a democratic socialist. We haven't really seen in her work the environmentalist aspect, but there are other people in the party who are working on that. And she has also described herself as fighting or working for protecting gender equality. She probably sounds more radical than she is, She has been in the parliament like for, what, 20 years or more. So she's very much part of the establishment, even if her party has been in the opposition most of the time. Right. 
And you ask why she is the leader of the second most popular party become prime minister in 2017. And the main reason is that the government coalition that was formed at the time with three parties, the Social Democrats, the Progressive Center-Right Party, and the Independence Party, which is a conservative party. And for that coalition to work, they opted for her as leading it because she was the most likely candidate to be able to unite both the right and the left behind her. So they were more likely to accept her as a leader of the government than the leader of the right-wing parties. Right. Um, I think that you made a small mistake. Yeah, I called her a social democrat. So Iceland is one of the few countries left in Europe that doesn't have a successful far-right party. In fact, as far as I can see, there seems to be very little radical politics in Iceland left, or am I missing something? I think you are correct if you talk about radical politics in the sense of very radical left-wing or very radical right-wing. But we definitely have some anti-establishment politics and parties that want to change the system. And one of the most prominent ones there is probably the Pirate Party. So I wouldn't say that you're, you're missing something, but we have the elements in some of the parties. And I would say more of anti-establishment and, well, then what happens when they become part of the system? They've been elected over and over. Yep. And some, uh, you can see some protest voting as well. But it's not very radical, that's true. So when I think about this story, you have a country at the brink of collapse. And about a year, two years later, it is blooming and booming mostly because of a tourism industry. And there is no legacy of anger, protest. Is this luck or did Iceland do things that other countries should have done? Like what lesson can other countries learn from seemingly easily overcoming one of the biggest economic crises in history? That's a very, very big question. And of course, uh, you know, looking back, we maybe have the tendency to say like this and this and this happened. And that's why Iceland was quick to recover. But we had a change of government in 2009. And I think that's important. So the old government was voted out and the new people take over. And we had the first left-wing government, the pure left-wing government taking over in 2009. And they had to steer the country through economic recovery. And it is true that tourism was a major contributor but then again, this left-wing government is voted out with a bang, even if the recovery was, like some say, it, like a miracle. I'm not sure that there was something specific that Iceland did correct. I think it was basically the authorities and the political parties and the people in Iceland and the financial system, they were at a time, you know, from 2009 and onwards, just kind of always responding to circumstances, responding to, you know, the collapse, responding to the IMF, responding to, you know, trying to uh, save ourselves. So that's interesting because in his famous work, the late Irish political scientist Peter Mayer made a distinction between responsible politics and responsive politics. And so responsible politics is that you by and large do what is expected of you, what is expected of you by the international community, which mostly means the neoliberal establishment, whereas being responsive means that you listen to your voters and you do what they do. And, and often there's a big gap there. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the Icelandic elite actually was mostly responsible. Like they took money from the EMF and they behaved according to the EMF 
which generally means that you need to make cuts. And that means that your voters get very upset. And so, again, it seems that the tourism industry was really a very big lucky break that allowed Iceland to, on the one hand, play with by what generally are brutal IMF rules. But because you had an increasing economy, it didn't include many cuts. Were there significant cuts in the welfare state or things like that? Yes, there were significant cuts, both in healthcare and welfare and education and etc. But the fact that there was a left-wing government managing this, there were probably less cuts than there would have been if we would have had a right-wing government. Right. But also another point that I would like to make is that, of course, it's like that people who are most active in the protest, they all feel very disappointed today that not as much has changed as they would have liked to. For example, we have had the issue with the constitution since 2009. For some reason, that became kind of an issue that we should change the constitution to fix the political system. And that issue has been an ongoing issue now for 10 or 12 years, and we haven't still changed the constitution. So even if it seems it has, of course, settled and people are less angry, but there's still like a big group of people who feel disappointed, would like to see more change. Right. Now, Iceland is a very small and homogenous country. There are a bit over 350,000 people in the country. And around here, it's definitely one of the widest countries that I've been in for a long time. The socioeconomic differences are traditionally not very big. Are there any major divisions? Are things like the culture wars over gender issues, over sexuality issues, are they coming up in Iceland or is everything just harmonious and happy? Well, I would like to say yes, but of course not. But like if we talk about issues like gender issues and gay rights and etc., then there is, of course, a group of people who talk against those issues. But that group is not very powerful. Just to name an example, we had a change to our law about ending pregnancies or termination of pregnancies or abortion two years ago. And of course, in the discussion, we could see these people for and against and some really harsh comments. But in the end, it was passed like with, you know, 80% of support. Right. And while I'm here, it's actually Pride period in Iceland. And what I noticed is not just Reykjavik has rainbow flags everywhere, but even smaller towns that I went through also had them all out. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about Icelandic politics? I think one of the greatest misunderstandings is that we are pure and incorrupt and everyone is equal and everyone is happy and etc. We are, of course, dealing with our issues here. Like, for example, even if we are in the forefront of, for example, in gender equality, there's still a long way to go. And one right. of the things uh, that I'm coming at here, that we are very good in Iceland in adopting all the laws and agreements, for example, for gender equality or the rights of gay people or transgender or, and etc. But then we are not necessarily good at following through. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Eva. Thank you. Smartly, Eva Onudotu is not on Twitter, but you can find out more about her academic work on the university website, which is english.hi.is slash staff slash eho. This was another episode of Radical, the podcast on the radical aspects of music, politics and sports hosted by me, Kas Mudde. The music is from the Godots with their classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Tarek Sidik for helping me with the editing of today's episode. If you want to know more about Radical, visit our website at 
www.radicaalpodcast.com. Radicaal spelt R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L. And if you like the podcast, please rate and subscribe. Also, please share it with friends and on social media. Thank you for listening. The economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really Melody Baker. I'm seeing down the bunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Captain Tell turned out a little weird.